Yeah, this this last few weeks have have been interesting, and then obviously I posted in the messenger group today, you know, about Neil Adams passing, and yeah, it's like fuck, man, it's like, you know, we got the George Perez thing going, which you know that's going to end this year at some point. This yeah, this this year is going to be like 2017 was for for you know TV stars, movie stars. Remember that year where it just seemed like every four days somebody <laughs> right. was dropping and you it, right yeah God but Neil Adams you know I I watched him on Facebook because he would go live and he was auctioning off you know books and this and that mm-hmm. he'd been doing that for the last several years you know during the pandemic and he would just tell stories sometimes he was sketching you know while they were auctioning things off I mean. Obviously, he hadn't been on Facebook for a while, and I thought, oh, okay, well, you know, he's taking a break, or, you know, he was doing it under his, uh, I think it's Krusty Bunkers. It's like his comic book shop or whatever. And I thought, okay, well, he's doing that, and, you know, I wasn't following that. And, you know, when the news came out today, it was like, oh, just a gut punch, because I had spoken with him several times at cons here in in Minnesota, you know, pre-pandemic. Yeah. And, you know, say what you will. I know the guy, you know, made a lot of money. You know, he he charged a ridiculous amount for his signature and things. But, you know, he was up there as one of the titans, you know, from the formidable periods of comics. Yeah. And to me, he was always super nice. And, you know, I would talk to him about Superman and Batman and this and that, you know, all kinds of different stuff. And, you know, he, he'd be doing whatever he's doing, you know, doing sketches at the con. And, you know, he'd just keep talking, blah, 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 blah. So that one hit closer to me than a George Perez. Um, you know, I respect George's work. I've watched many, you know, videos on YouTube. And he seems like just a, such a nice guy. And Chris, uh, sorry, blah, blah, blah. Chris Claremont, I met him once at a con, and I felt really bad for him. This was probably 2016 or 2017 mm-hmm. here in Minneapolis. And, you know, I went up and talked to him, and I talked to him about uh, Star Trek uh, Dead of Honor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the graphic novel. and Because I at that time, I really didn't know that much about uh, X, you know, his X-Men work. And so I don't know if he was maybe just excited to talk about the Star Trek graphic novel. Well, I think, you know, with, with guys like Claremont, you know, every, every fan is coming up to talk to him about X-Men or Wolverine or, you know, the days of future past or the time with Byrne and all that. And it's a refreshing departure for someone to talk to him about something different that he did. You know, because, you know, his his career, I mean, a lot of his career is Delta is on X-Men. Right. When you sit there and you look at that, he's got a good body of work that's not. He, you he know, does. And, you know, he, does. he did, you know, other series. I mean, again, he did Iron Fist with Byrne, but he also did the man thing. Um, you know, it was like a 13 issue series. It got canceled. Um, 
but it had some good stuff in there. And he did Spider Woman, and he did, I mean, he's done so much. Um, you know, it, it I, I'm going to steer things back to Neil, though, for a moment, because, yeah. you know, I, I was sitting there looking at Neil's uh, list here on Mike's Amazing World. And because I'll, I'll be honest with you, my first exposure to Neil Adams was in a DC Comics Blue Ribbon Digest um, mm. back in the mid seventies, like seventy seven. The little reprints. Yeah, they were they were the the, the digest, and yep. the first one I found was Superman, with that gorgeous cover by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, PBHM, and. Um, the second one was Batman, and it, it, each of the digests was uh, stories throughout the decades of, of Superman, you know, like the poignant ones, and then the stories uh, throughout Batman's career. And one of the stories in there was the Joker's five-way revenge, which mm -hmm. I think is probably his most popular Batman story. Because I, I think when you think of Neil Adams' Batman, that seems to be the one that they always lift up. I mean, of course, there's Rachel Ghoul. Um, right. It was it Son of the Demon, or was he yep. Son of the Demon, or was that M Bingham? I always get those mixed up. Well, I just yeah, I get them mixed up too. I mean, to me, his work with Denny O'Neill, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in in the seventies with Batman, really paved the way for the eighties Batman that I grew up with. And then, of course, you had the Frank Miller. Dark Knight, Batman, and all that. But without Neil and Denny, you wouldn't have had any of that. Well, and then so uh, that's the thing. I was sitting there looking at that, and basically from '67 to about, I guess '72, uh, uh, more like it, it just seemed like he, he you know, yeah, '70, '73. You know, he was just doing most of his work at DC, some work at Marvel kind of going back and forth that uh, he even did like back and forth from JLA to Avengers you know in, in that time but when I'm sitting there looking at guys like George and John they're so much more prolific than, than Neil was I mean in Mike's Amazing World Neil's got 241 story credits and about 4,000 total pages of work in his career yeah. and, and you'll look at Byrne and Paris and they're just like so far beyond that and in I guess it was 78 um, Neil kind of stepped away from Marvel and DC altogether and um, you know after the uh, Superman versus Muhammad Ali it seemed like you know after that he went to Pacific and Eclipse and Continuity, and uh, well, I think I think part of what happened there, well, a couple things. So one, you know, his body of work during that time, yeah. you know, it's it's hard it's hard to say, you know, the quantity versus quality argument. Mm -hmm. You know, the quality of the work that was put out was so good. Yes. I mean, let's not let's not forget the. You know, Green Lantern, Green Arrow stuff, right? right? The right. whole speedy addiction, right? Cover that caused such a huge kerfuffle. I learned it from you, Dad. Oh wait, no, yeah. that's not. <laughs> oh. oh God, don't don't bring me back to those PSAs. This is your brain on drugs. <laughs> um, 
I'm an egg. Uh, yeah, the dead man specter. Um, yeah, I and mean, world's he, finest. He, he did a number of. Yeah, his his artwork was so influential to so many people. Well, I mean, I think that that like Perez, Byrne, Giffen, and uh, uh, Brent Anderson, and so many others that you know, and, and Sienkiewicz, you know, that yep. came about in the seventies were all guys striving to do what Neil Adams was doing. Be oh, totally. You know, Neil Adams' style became the DC style of the 70s into the mid-80s. I mean, he really did set the tone. I mean, he brought DC out of the Silver Age. Yeah, I guess, yeah, you could say, I, I don't know about Rich Buckler, because I think Rich Buckler's more of a contemporary with, with Neil. But... And and and, and it, my, my my sad part in all this is that you know when when I became a comic book collector, it wasn't I, I wasn't look, searching out Neil. I searched yeah. out John. I searched out John sure. left and right, you know. And I've got pretty much everything, you know, except for you know a couple things that are I'm just priced out of, you know. But. Um, I, you know, I didn't go back and get all those, you know, all those great stories from Neil. And, and now I'm pretty sure I'm priced out of that, too. But, no, me too. And, and so, you know, it's, 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 you know, in the 90s, when I was big into digging into the, you know, 50 cent bins and quarter bins, mm -hmm. I wish, I, I wish I could go back to my younger self, right, and say, pull every single one of the detective comics, right, the iconic, you know, House on the Hill, right? Image. Yeah. The Detective Comics cover, the Joker, right? With the playing cards. You know, stuff that now we go, and, you know, the Speedy cover, right? With the the needle. Pull all those out because they're, they're super important. You don't know it yet, but they're really important. <laughs> and, but, you know, coulda, shoulda, woulda, you know. Uh, it's just, you know, my whole thing with posting that in the, in the Messenger today was... It just sucks, and we knew it was coming. I think when we talked about yeah, because he'd already uh, had about the sepsis, and it was the sepsis that got him. It was the sepsis that got him. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if it was COVID, right, that led to this. But you know, we're of a certain generation that a lot of these guys that we grew up with reading, you know, their comics, whether they were writers or artists. I mean, they're they're all getting old. Yeah, and that's, so gonna that's keep... why this year scares me now because I'm I'm sitting there looking at you know there's, I mean obviously you know John Byrne is always going to be a concern. He's seventy two at this point. He just had uh, his second cataract surgery yesterday or the day before. Came out of that okay, and you know he but he you know he's seen been seeing doctors and such lately about his health, and he's talked about it freely on his. Uh, website i'm not stalking him yeah <laughs> but you know it, it, you sit there and you look at the other guys that are still around that are in you know those those higher years i mean chris claremont of course is also in that same yeah. know, age range peter david i think is a little bit younger but yeah a lot of these gosh you know a lot of these guys and and you know neil adams passed away i think if you were to go 
and look on any of the major regular news sites, I don't think there's even a mention. Um, Associated Press. I, I, or, yeah, yeah. I haven't checked CNN. Um, CNN would be the closest I'm, thing that that I would I would probably expect to do that since they're more liberal leaning. Uh, don't think Fox News would say anything. I was looking on the AP <laughs> Newswire uh, just to see if they if they say anything. And um, well, all these guys are getting up there though. You know, I just had to quick you know do a quick Google search, right? Because I I always think of Byrne on the X Men, and the next person I think of is Jim Lee, and Jim Lee, he's 57. Mm-hmm. One year you older know. than me. Tom McFarland's like 63. But I remember, right, in the early 90s, thinking, oh my gosh, these guys are so young and they're starting to image this company that's going to go head to head against, <laughs> you know, the big two. And he's 57. And, you know, of course, you know, doing a Google search, right, it's always like people also search for it. So Liefeld is 54. McFarlane is 61. 61, okay, yeah. You know, Frank Miller is 65. And he looks like he's 90. Oh my God, how is that guy not dead yet, by the way? God, he looked like he was going to die years ago. No, I mean, he and John Carpenter, I think, you know, probably took the same drugs. (laughs) Oh, no doubt Frank Miller was doing some some fun stuff. Yeah. And and you wonder, uh, what about... um, uh, wrote Killing Joke. Alan Moore. How old is Alan Moore? Mm. I don't know. He's always looked like a demented Santa to me. Really? Are you looking it up? Yeah, I'm pulling him up. Let's see. Alan Moore. Yeah, he's had a giant beard. Yeah, born in 53. So uh, that's oh, uh, 69. Yeah, he's the same age as my dad. Yeah, he looks like a demented Santa or like an old. Uh, <laughs> Rob Zombie. <laughs> Rob Zombie was almost 70. Yeah. Now, I already saw Demented Santa in the movie Fat Man with uh, Mel Gibson. <laughs> it's a good movie. It is a good movie. If, uh, if you if you don't have complete hate for Mel Gibson, you know. Uh, well, since we're not recording. I, I, you know, actually, I, I, I'm recording this right now. And I could edit oh. it like a CNC if we had to, or if we talk Sunday, I can just clip it on to the beginning or the end. You know, it's it's <laughs> it's one of those things. I record everything that comes over, you know, Skype. So. You son of a. <laughs> but you know, I just I'm sitting there, and I've been, you know, I've got a a, a Kindle Fire tablet that okay. I, that I use to read my books digitally. And you're one of 12 people. Sure. No, it works. It works. <laughs> I used to have an Aspen tablet. That was the perfect comic book screen ratio with the Aspen. Aspen. What it, the heck it's, is a that? Knock, it's a knockoff Android tablet. Mm. And, but it was perfect. It was the perfect size. Those ones you find at like uh, Sam's club for 40 bucks. Uh, Walmart. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, my wife bought it for me and it, like I said, it worked perfect for five, six years and then it got sat on Mm. and, um, no, first the, the power supply got busted. I got this guy to fix it over at the, at a local shop. I spent 20 bucks doing that and then it got sat on and I'm just like, well, (laughs) damn it. You know, it wanted to die. So my, my wife got me the Kindle fire and, and, um, now I've got 
an incredibly large, I say incredibly large collection. Let me see just how big this is in gigs. It's counting, it's counting, it's counting. 268 gigabytes of Gosh. comic book CBRs. And, you know, that was, I, I got that years ago um, with help of friends. And then, you know, I did my own uh, digging and, you know, found 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 a bunch out there. But I also had purchased the Amazing Spider-Man CD. That, I don't remember the name mm. of the company that did that. Um, so I got every issue of Spider-Man from Amazing Fantasy 15 all the way through 2006. And back in the day when Marvel was like licensing that to everybody and their brother, and they were putting out. Yeah, and I got I got the Fantastic Four collection and then the Avengers collection, and they weren't expensive. Now they go for a good penny, um, but the only problem with them now they're really nice and they're I mean, well I say really nice they're separated and scanned in as PDFs. Okay. But uh, the problem is is they're scanned from actual physical copies they're not digital copies hmm. and so, on the cd on the cd yeah wow so okay. so you're having to suffer through some pages that may be difficult to read hmm. and you know so so sometimes it's good sometimes yeah these are as good as they can find at time the older ones are the ones that are harder to to get through you know the amazing spider-man or the Fantastic Four, the very first ones, because the copies are just not in necessarily the best condition. But, you know, it is what it is. Well, and I'm always torn on that stuff, and we've talked about it on the podcast, that, you know, because I have Marvel Unlimited, I've got the mm -hmm. DC Infinite, or whatever it is, you know, because there's, like you said, there's so many issues that they're just out of reach, right? right. And, they, and they, they haven't been reprinted, or they were, and they're not now, and you know, you don't have a copy of it for whatever reason. Right. And that's the only time I, I look at digital. And it. I think it's, again, another one of these, depending on when you grew up, things that I know what I'm looking at on the iPad, whether it's Marvel or DC. They've cleaned it up. They've recolorized it, right? You know, it's we've talked about that in some episodes where it's like, oh, his jacket is brown and... We say, well, no, it's purple in mine. Yeah, you yeah, know, and yeah. it's and and part of me, and I don't know why they don't do this because you know it'd be significantly cheaper. I would think it'd be significantly cheaper. Just print it on the newspaper stock and put it out in a trade, and let me see it the way it was printed. I just want to see it the way it originally was. I, th I know it's I think not the, perfect. The, the problem in that area is that printing as a uh, as a medium has become expensive no matter what kind of paper you're using so you know they're but they do it on but they do i'll just interject but they do it on some things because remember i said i got the joker omnibus right that yeah. reprinted all of the joker issues plus ones that were never published and that is on a newspaper like stock you know, it's it's the it just feels different, and the coloring is different. It's not glossy. It's not you know the thin cheap Marvel pages. You know, it's it just it it feels different. So they can do it if they want to do it, 
but they don't. Hmm. That's just my little rant. No, that's a good rant. I'm trying to find um I I just feel like if you're gonna reprint stuff from a certain time period when there wasn't the glossy paper and they weren't doing the a million different colors that they could print, print it the way that it was, if you're gonna do it. Just make it the way, and it's not perfect, but it's the way it was printed. Yeah, and I just got bad news. You remember uh -oh. how I'd been talking about the Warren books, creepy era, yeah. 1984 and such? The Internet Archive has taken that all of them down. Ooh, look at a little cease and desist. It says here this item is no longer available. Items may be taken down for various reasons, including decisions by the uploader or due to a violation of our terms of use. Ooh. Yeah. That's sad. Yeah, and I don't I don't know not to go back to what we're talking about, but I will. You know, and I get it. There's some people that say, you know what, I would like to see this the way that the artist intended it. Right? You know, with no limitations based on, you know, the printing and the paper quality and all that. Just print it the way that it was um, originally inked and colored and all that. Uh, I don't know. I'm of two minds of that. One one is I'd rather see it the way somebody saw it in, you know, 1972. Not the way we can make it in 2022. What are your thoughts on that? Would you rather see what the artist originally intended, or would you rather have an exact reproduction of what it was actually published? Like, well, I mean, I'm kind of in in an, in an odd space as far as that goes, and I'll uh, I'll use The Godfather as an example. All right. <laughs> okay. Um. You know, when I was a little kid, I didn't care for The Godfather. Though my parents, I've never my seen parents, it, by the way. My parents love The Godfather, you know. Um, they love all The Godfather movies. And when I got older, I remember I watched, I think it was on a cable channel, The Godfather Chronicles. And what they did, well, the, the thing is, the first movie is from somewhere about 1950. Uh, and it goes a couple years, and you see the life of of Michael Corleone as he gets into the family business, and, his, and eventually his father Don Vito dies, and he takes over, even though it's, he's got older brothers, uh, you know, and and things happen, you know. And then the second movie, Godfather Two, which is like the first really kind of a sequel. I mean, obviously you've had multiple James Bond movies and. Pink Panther and other stuff. See, I haven't seen any of the Godfather movies, yeah. and I know that sounds awful, but it's the third one, right, that people hate? Well, I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> Let me. Okay. The Godfather 2 had two different movies in it. It mm -hmm. had a, a, a part of the movie where it was the story about Michael and things that were going on in the modern day, or I say modern day, it was in the 50s and the 60s, uh, you know, basically around the time of Cuba, uh, the Cuba Revolution. And okay. then it went back to the early 20th century 
to Don Vito Corleone as a young child in Sicily and the events that made him escape to the United States. And, um, you know, it, 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 then it showed him as a young adult played by Robert De Niro, who first person to ever win an Oscar for not speaking English the entire movie, you know, because <laughs> okay. um, uh, he spoke Italian the entire time. And uh, but, you know, so, you know, they, they had the, the, the two stories going running concurrently. And if there was I thought something De Niro that, was his son in the movie. No, he, he played the he played the Marlon Brando role when Marlon, when the character uh, was younger. Anyway, okay. so you had these two stories interspersed and they went back and forth and all that. And then, of course, Godfather three takes place uh, years later. And um, Don Michael is all very old, and Andy Garcia is a young buck, Sonny's boy, and uh, Sofia Coppola plays um, Michael's daughter, and she is just horrible. I mean, Winona Ryder was supposed to play it, but she was going through exhaustion, and she bowed out, and so Sofia came in very last second to do this, and she you know, has been panned and everything, but... She's made yeah, up she, for I, it. I've, I've read that she ruined the movie. No, no, her father ruined the movie with her. <laughs> but, you know, but he, he, you know, he didn't have a choice because he had the producers and everybody on his back saying, you need to get this movie out. And so he had to get somebody in there and his daughter was the only one that he could really find that, you know, could do it. And she wasn't a great actor. Now, she is a great director. And if you've ever watched, uh, if, if you ever want to see a decent movie with Bill Murray, uh, Lost in Translation is a great movie. Yeah, she, she's done several yeah, but, good movies. But I really, really enjoyed that that movie there. But yeah, she's done several. And, uh, but, it, you know, she gets... So when did when did The Godfather 3 come out? Was that like middle 80s or something? 89. I mean, it came out in 89. Wow. The, the, the thing Same year is, as Batman. Is it, is it, is it, is it like sometime after that is when I think TBS, one of the others, did the the Corleone Chronicles or the Godfather Chronicles. And they did them all in chronological order. So you got to hmm. see Don Vito as a little boy, you know, emigrating and then him, you know, as a grown man and then, you know, The Godfather and Godfather 2. But The Godfather 2 is just all the stuff that happened in the the 60, 50s and 60s and then so so is this hold on so is this a tv show that was original like no it's just all the material all the, no, all or the, is movie, the movies it's reorganized it's the, the movies reorganized and original other material from the movies that was cut out added in kind of like the k-cop version of superman you know they, mm, they, they okay they put everything in that they they could find or get that seemed to fit and gotcha. work. but you know that's how i watched it the first time now purists will tell you that's not how you watch it you know you watch godfather one you watch godfather two and you watch godfather three well maybe not godfather three but you watch godfather one you watch godfather two you know and and so but that's the way i, I originally watched it and that's the way i wanted to watch it you know moving on i wanted to see it in order like that otherwise it felt wrong and yet, yeah. now you look back and you go okay we'll know this god I, i'm sitting there watching these with my son now so you watch Godfather 1, you watch Godfather 2, and we're probably going to watch the, the third one, but we're going to watch the new version of it that uh, Coppola just put out, The Death of Michael Corleone. 
and uh, you know, see that I, I, again. And so, to what you're saying, and it went a long way around to get there, is that you know, I just um, the way that we like to see things or read things or do things is all based upon our first experience with it. And I'll say, like, with Neil Adams, the first time that I was exposed to his work was in that digest. Now, the beautiful thing about those digests is that they're all condensed. They're small. I mean, they're smaller than a regular comic book. And yeah. so everything is condensed. And so detailed art looks so incredible when you see it like that. Crappy art just looks even more crappy. <laughs> but I, you know the thing is is that uh, those digests gave me hella respect for a certain artist uh, Kurt Swan and his uh, Superman work up through about the early to mid 70s you know anything that I saw of that I just loved now his lighter stuff I didn't see it in digest I just saw it in the regular comics and I got I, I, it was dull to me it was boring it was missing something that those early, earlier stories had the pop that those early stories had. I think one of the one of my favorite ones of those was uh, the Captain Thunder story, right after DC had gotten the Fawcett uh, stories, mm, and yeah. and instead of you know putting out a Shazam book right away, they did Captain Thunder in in a Superman book. So he looked like Captain Marvel, except he had a sun instead of a lightning bolt on his chest. And instead of saying Shazam, he said Thunder and rubbed his belt. And <laughs> his, his character's name was Willie Fawcett rather than, you know, Billy Batson. But, you know, yeah, Willie Fawcett. And, and he fought the Monster League, you know. And, but, I mean, the thing yeah. is, it was, it was, you know, that, that was the first Shazam in DC with him and Superman fighting each other but he was Captain Thunder and I, and, and the the you know the art by Kurt Swan and that is just so freaking gorgeous but the first time I read it was in a digest yeah I you know I I have an 8 and 4 year old and you know with uh, the 8 year old I've been pushing her to you know to read more and of course she wants me on her iPad or do other things and you know, I worry, and I'm sure parents across the generations, you know, like, you're not doing what I did, and you need to do what I did. But I get her, you know, trade paperbacks of, mm -hmm. of different things, and, uh, you know, of course, she likes Diary of a Wimpy Kid, and we've been watching uh, Teen Titans Go mm -hmm. on, uh, on HBO Max. That's our nighttime ritual so as they've you know had dinner and had their showers and gotten in their jammies uh we get to watch you know depending on what time it is you know two two to four episodes of teen titans go because they're about 10 to 11 minutes each mm -hmm. um and i just started introducing her to the comics i want my kids to have the same unplugged experience that you and i are talking about that you know, video games are great. Watching a show is great. Um, which, by the way, we've been watching Scooby-Doo from when I was a kid. And, man, watching it as an adult, I'm like, oh, my God, this is so cheesy. But they still enjoy it, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but trying to get them to unplug and either read a book or read a graphic novel, you know, 
it's tough and I worry about you know what does that mean for future you know years down the road or potential you know the next generation like I think as a human being you have to have some times where you're not staring at a screen whether that's the computer or your phone or your tablet or the TV just giving your eyes a break from a light source you know bombarding you and just looking at something and so I've been working a lot with Langley on that of you know there's a certain satisfaction of just holding something mm-hmm. and reading it you know and and you know flipping back a page and going what what just happened oh my gosh you're right and flipping back and forth you know because I remember doing that so much as a kid you know you're you're reading fast as a kid and all of a sudden something happens and you go wait what and you flip back a page and you go oh I missed that you know because you know as a kid right you're reading through it and you know you're flipping back and forth I want them to have that same thing of again not being in front of an iPad or a phone or a TV or a monitor you know just unplugged and so our, our house is filled you know mainly because of me of all these graphic novels Mm -hmm. and you know my wife likes to read two books but they're all they're too old you know for the kids you know they're too high a level but you know as as much as i can i pull out you know like i've got the batman adventures you know all the trade paperbacks you know the one where harley harley quinn first appeared in comic books yeah you know and those are all age appropriate for langley at this point and it's like i just i just want her to be unplugged off of a screen of some kind and I don't know maybe we're fighting as parents a losing battle well no I mean you know the the thing is that you know the kids are getting offered um, a new selection of things in their libraries and you know, Christopher you know my son you know of course we've gone through you to get some things for him um, yep. and and you know he loves reading reading manga and such but he'll read it as well on his phone. Uh, not a tablet, not a computer, but his phone. Uh, as opposed to reading it out of a book. But he, like, whenever they're doing, they're, like, they're doing the, 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 the star testing this next week. And. Yeah, Langley's going through the same thing. And so he's, like, filling his book bag with manga books that he can take up there because. He's going to finish quicker than everybody else. He's, he's very good at testing, and he always finishes quick. And so he, he basically has hours to sit there and read, and so that's what he pulls out yeah, to yeah. read. Um, but, I mean, he, he, he's been pretty good about that, and, of course, he uh, is, is working to be an artist as well. And so, you know, yeah, I saw his Batman picture it was really good. Yeah, he, he's, he's done a lot of really good stuff and and all that. But he's he's still he hasn't developed his own um, uh, image. What I, what I mean is that whenever he's drawing something, he's drawing something that he sees. Yep. Instead of creating something fresh and new. And when he starts to create something fresh and new, he has issues of proportion and such. But, you know, that that's again He's observing an awful lot, and 
I sit there and I point it out to the, the comic swipes page and I sit there and say, see if you can recognize any of your work here. Because <laughs> there's always something like, hey, I saw that right. here. I saw that there. I saw that there. But, you know, it's, um, but I mean, he, the thing is he's, like like what you're saying, he's got access to multiple bookcases in here full of of graphic novels and and um, omnibuy and 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 other trade paperbacks and whatnot. Um, and someone right now, is is, it, I mean, is it is it just me or is it different the connection you get when you're holding something that's physical versus something that's di- that's digital? Like I. I don't feel the same connection, you know, when, when we've reviewed some books that, you know, I don't have. And so I go to Marvel Unlimited or DC Infinite and it just, it's not the same well, I, as when I'm you know, holding something. When, when we're reviewing and I'm here at my computer, I'm actually bringing it up on my computer screen and flipping through the CBR or whatever. But when I read it, I definitely would prefer to be able to read it in hand. Uh, rather than doing, I don't like I don't like leisurely reading at my computer. I, I want to be able to sit down in a chair. Like, and w- one of my big f- uh, fusses the last couple of years has been reading the omnibus, uh, trying to mm-hmm. read an omnibus in any particular chair. <laughs> my office yeah, chair. Yeah, some, some of them can get pretty ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's not comfortable, and so yeah. you know, it's like I haven't had I, all we've had in our house for the last couple of years are couches and chase lounges and things that I've bought to make my wife comfortable, and I haven't had my own lazy boy in forever. She bought me a lazy boy for for Christmas, though, and so I've got that now. So I've got a place where I can sit down and read my omnibus, and of course. I sit down to read it, and everybody wants to talk to me. So now yeah, I've got to find a way of throwing that off into another room, so I can just go and and uh, read in in peace and quiet. But it, you know, with with him, you know, whenever he's reading uh, a book by um, you know at hand, it always be seems to be more of a necessity. A I don't want to be bored kind of moment it's not like he goes out of his way for it and what i mean is that when he's got free time here at the house to do whatever he's not pulling out those main books to read them here right but still yeah and and it's just it's it's the same in this house and you know i i don't want to say worry but there there is a little bit of worry around um I think the older you get, the more balanced you get in terms of like, you know, what we were messaging before, you know, about I was finishing the card. But before that, um, uh, as a as a teaser, you know, John and I have been talking about covering Final Crisis, the the Legion of, of Three Worlds by George Perez and Jeff Johns, you know, because of Perez's illness. And so I had started reading that and. You know, uh, I take a break because I'm, I'm definitely one of those ones that when I'm, and thanks to John for sending me an extra hardcover of uh, uh, the Legion of Three Worlds, once I get into it, I'll just keep going, right? It's like a Netflix binge. Yeah. Um, I'll just keep reading and reading and reading and reading. Um, you know, I want, I want the kids to have that same thing, and I just, I, I don't know, and maybe it's just because we're of a certain age that... I don't feel the same way when I'm reading it on the iPad, which 
you know, if you're going to read digitally, that's optimal. If you're reading on an iPad or an Android device, that's, you know, that 10 inches or whatever in size. Well, you can always do um, what my brother-in-law does. Yeah, what's that? My brother-in-law is, uh, he's raising his uh, girlfriend's uh, son, Dominic. And we call him Don Frankie. Uh, but he, uh, <laughs> Frank, my brother-in-law, Frank, uh, basically, whenever he wants to motivate him in one direction or another, he goes, you know what a real man does? A real man does this. A real man drives a Jeep, man. You know, a real man, when he shakes your hand, <laughs> he looks you straight in the eye. A real man does this. A real man does that. And he does this to, to Frank, and Frankie just buys it and 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 mm. does those things and even when frank says something that's wrong he still does it you know <laughs> but it might be kind of hard on a on a girl yeah an eight-year-old girl <laughs> yeah and, and 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 again this is what he does to work with frankie you know and with christopher it's a different thing you know what what i do christopher seems to follow my example a lot easier if i don't push it on him you know, he just sees how I do things, and he figures out why, and goes from there. Yeah, and maybe maybe part of it is just looking at some of my sister's son is 13. He'll be 14 this year, and he's just so hooked on everything digital. I just call it digital as like the bucket, right? Of because it's me right the there. It's right there at your fingertips. It. Yeah, he wants to be on the computer. He's got an iPhone. You yeah. know, it's like. That's all he wants to do is either play Xbox, be on the iPhone, or be on the computer. And it's like, do you ever give your eyes a freaking break? Can you can you just look at something that's not on a screen? And, you know, I feed him comics all the time, but I personally, I have to stay on him. You know, I'll send him text messages and say, did you read this yet? No, I haven't read it yet. Sorry, Uncle David. But then I'll be on him like, you need to read it so I can talk to you about it because it's always stuff I've already read but it's a way to get him to do something other than play games or be online and mm -hmm. you know, I don't know, maybe I'm fighting the future in that regard but I, I don't think there's a way to get around it I mean, the the print medium of comic books you know, the one thing that it has going for it is the fact that these things are have value after the fact that they mm -hmm. can appreciate in value but now we get nfts and why not just oh, start selling comic God. books as nfts don't even get me started on that crap but but, I, I mean, but, but the thing is is like that that's the direction that that is going you know the 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 one thing that keeps comic books from going the way of the dodo is the fact that there is an intrinsic value that it has now it only has that but value books as... are still printed books are still printed yes and they don't really appreciate not like i know you i know what you're saying is true because there are certain comics that all of a sudden explode you know they're only right. six months or a year old and all of a sudden they're selling for 10 times you know their original value but books are still being printed like crazy and they don't have the same type of collector base that a comic book would have no no but i mean but you're and, and the books have the digital realm as well does the digital realm is it available is the kindle version available the same day the paperback or hardback goes on sale i don't know and you see i don't, I don't read I don't, I don't read books 
And I, I would, yeah, I, I would use like the Harry Potter books or whatever. Does it have example. pictures? I'm not interested. Is if uh-huh. is if they were uh, if they came out, um, you know, same day as the uh, the printed one. Isn't that funny? Probably in our lifetime, we're old men. They'll be like auctioning off the first printing of whatever the first Harry Potter book was. There's a first printing of a Harry Potter book, you know, yeah. item number two three two, and we'll go Harry Potter. What the? F- <laughs> Oops. Hello. I, I didn't say it. Okay. I cut. I cut myself off. Yeah. You, okay. <laughs> I hope so. I, I don't have that auto beeper thing that Scott Gardner used. Of course, that thing got messed up. But <laughs> that's. But yeah, yeah. It's it's. It, we're just going down that rabbit hole that eventually the people that collect comic books are going to die off. Now, there are going to be ones that will stay in value, and there will be a small float of books that get printed. But for the most part, your readers are going to go digital. So you don't think in our lifetime we'll ever see, let's just say, top-tier characters, right, like a... Or, or teams, right? They'll never stop making, you know, an Avengers monthly or a Batman monthly or a Superman monthly well, of some kind. What I see actually is is a different thing. The tactic will be this: X Men only digital, and that is there will be one book that's digital only. You can't get it in print format, and they'll start doing that to test the waters to see. Will these things sell if they're just in a digital format, and how well will they sell? And uh, then you'll start to see the, the the paper lines just start to dissolve. But again, it's gonna t- it's gonna take a long time because there are still so many of us that that see that intrinsic value and know that you know at some point you know. Barnacle Boy number six is going to be worth something. It's going to put your kids through college. See, yeah, see, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know you're saying that in jest because let's be honest, the vast majority of comic books are worth pennies on the dollar. Mm-hmm. You know, months after after they're published. So please don't go out and buy every single comic on the rack today and think you're going to make money because you're not. Um. You know, one of the things that, that, you know, that maybe potentially the comic book industry evolves into is, you know, uh, the Europeans, right? So for decades, right, they were not getting the monthly issue of a book. The publishers would bundle up, you know, two or three issues, Mm -hmm. and then they would, that would be the next, you know, issue that you would see, right, as a European, you know, as Batman, whatever, but it would be from from our perspective, it would be two or three issues of Batman bundled together. Yeah, or they um, would have a weekly thing, and so everything would be right. spread out more, less pages and less story. Yeah, and they and and the DC has done that. I think Marvel's done that. You know, with anthology a, books, like like what we noticed with the the Marvel team ups. Uh, the yep. John Byrne Marvel team up to, with Captain Britain. The way that was well, DC, DC was doing that for a while, and I don't know if they still are, but they were doing that where they would release, you know, basically half an issue every two weeks, mm-hmm. 
um, you know, digitally, and it was a reduced price. Uh, my struggle has always been with digital comics is, why are you charging me the same amount as the print copy? Shouldn't I get a discount? Since you're not buying the paper, yeah. Exactly, and you don't have to distribute it, right? So shouldn't it be at least a dollar or less? Um, Because, I mean, I want the writers and the artists to get paid and the inkers and everybody else that's got their, you know, got to contribute to the work. But I I think, you know, back to what I was saying, I think that potentially could be the next evolution of comics is there won't be a monthly issue. It'll be bi-monthly. And, you know, you'll get twice the size, um, but it'll be every other month. And eventually it'll fade out from there because I guess most... Most of uh, uh, the international publications for like, whoa, what was that? My uh, blood sugar monitor. Uh oh, are you gonna die? Nope. No. <laughs> no, I'm fine. <gasps> no, just... um, they print. They print hardcovers. Yeah, they print hardcovers. You know, they're seventy or eighty pages. Mm-hmm. And they're like eighteen bucks. Um, you know that that could be a route too. Um, I just uh, a few years ago read a was a French Batman story, and I have to go look at my shelf here. But it came out. It was re- yeah, it was republished in the United States, and it was two hardcovers. Um, it was really good, actually. Was it um, all in French? No, it was translated to English. Um, The artwork was stellar. But, uh, you know, from our perspective, you know, the hardcovers were very thin because they were, like I said, only about 80 pages um, each. So I don't know. I just, you know, my overarching thought on this is I, I don't want print to die. I think people need a break from looking at screens, from looking at, you know, their phones, their tablets, TVs, just human nature, like just give your eyeballs a break and let, you know, let let the imagination run a little bit too. Yeah. No, I think you make a good point. Um, it's just, you know, where where is it, where is it easiest to get this media right now? And yeah, that's true. You know, it, it, the thing is, is that over the next couple of weeks and months, I know that we're going to start seeing a lot of trade paperbacks come out. The best of Neil Adams. Oh, for or, sure. You know, the, the, you know it, it, Neil and DC. Now, of course, Neil was an incredibly savvy businessman, and mm-hmm. he did a lot for uh, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, and he did a lot for comic book creators in general to make sure that the, the creator rights were cemented and they got their they, they got more for their uh, work than you know just the initial print of the books um, yeah somebody commented on uh, Back to the Bins about listening to the Kevin Smith you know Fat Man on Batman or whatever mm-hmm. I listened to those two different episodes they are really good yeah. where Neil talks quite a bit about you know that battle with DC and trying to get money for creators and all that it's very it's very interesting yeah i i listened to those too and 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 was definitely intrigued it, and, and you know and this is my big regret you know is that i'm probably going to have to go to those trades to read a lot of those stories because 
Well, I mean, I've got a lot of Neil's work digitally. Uh, the World's Finest stuff that he did, the Batman that he did, the Brave and the Bold. I don't have any Strange Adventures, and I don't have House of Mystery. Um, and I don't have any of the the original Teen Titans, while I have all the new stuff, and that's got no Neil work. But Neil did a, a, some work in Teen Titans uh, that I would definitely like to like to see. And of course, I think everybody's got the six issues, or at least reprints of the six issues that he did on X-Men. Don't forget the Green Lantern, Green, Green Arrow, Lantern, Hard Green Tribal, Arrow. and Heroes. Yep, yep. and then uh, the work in the Avengers. Uh, but he also did like some Aquaman, oh, Dead Man, his Dead Man work. Yep. Uh, golly, there's just so much. And he did some work for Warren Publishing on Creepy and Eerie. So there's, uh, you know, work there that, that, that uh, I'd like to find. But it's going to be difficult now that they've taken down all the Warren archives off of the Internet archives. It's going to make it even that, that much harder. Well, you'll have to get those nice prestige hardcovers. Uh, yeah, and, and this is, this is the, the, that's the other thing that's, is, is, that's interesting, is that the, the comic book market or the collector market has deftly turned its its eye towards the older and um, shall we say you know more cash in hand guys in their older ages you know those guys whose kids are grown up and out of the house and so once again they have you know cash that they can spend and they, they put out things that are more tailored to them the artisan artifact artist editions the, the those giant books like the Behold Galactus book that came out. I don't even know what you call that one. You know which one I'm talking about? Yeah, I sent you guys a picture of the one that I got, which was the Stanko or Starenko's Revolutionary. Yeah. <laughs> Stanko. <laughs> uh, I, got a, I got a package for Tony Stank. Uh, <laughs> He's right here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're super over... They're so impractical. Um... That's kind of like those uh, artist edition, artifact edition. You know, unless it's something truly meaningful to you. You know, I'm looking at the Steranko one right now because it's on the floor in my office because it doesn't fit on any shelf. It's huge. I, I had to reposition all my shelves so I could fit that Galactus <laughs> and my, my artifact editions. But that Galactus one, to be fair to Marvel, it was only 40 bucks. Yeah, I, that was a really nice price point. Yes, on them, that was nice. It's not like those artifact ones where it was like, "Hey, you like these three issues of X Men? Pay two hundred dollars to see it in black and white." Yeah, <laughs> I still wish I could get that Fantastic Four artist edition that Byrne did. Yeah, good luck. Yeah, I know they're well over two hundred bucks now. Yeah, we don't need that kind of stuff. But I'm sure that we'll start seeing some Neil Adams stuff here too. Now that I, I guess though, it'd be hard to find the you know the original artwork for Neil's work since it's all well, like late you said, 60s and early 70s. Well, like you said though, he was a pretty savvy businessman, so I wouldn't be surprised that his family is going to be digging through his his archives for decades because uh, he was super 
prolific. I mean, the guy never stopped drawing. But did he sell his uh, pages, or did he hold on? I don't think so. I think he knew the value of them. You know, I mean, let's be real. Neil Adams getting a signature on a comic book at a con was 50 bucks. Yeah, um, so true. You definitely, <laughs> he, he was the Shatner of the comic book world, that's for sure. Oh, completely. And, you know, people, people you know, poop on him for that. And it's like, you know what? More power to him. It's not like these guys had 401k plans. So does it suck that you had to pay 50 bucks? And I'm looking at my wall right now at my signed Batman and Superman number 50 with the Neil Adams uh, connecting covers that are signed by him and um, yeah but for all the entertainment and joy they brought us it's like ah, fine okay here's your hundred dollars <laughs> uh, you know <sighs> well I read his work for years at a dime a page right yeah, so yeah. It, it was but anyway. it was never important to me to to you know necessarily meet these guys and get the get the autographs I did I, I mean I did what I did with Byrne because well he was here and yeah. and it's something he didn't do that often anymore but that guy even even back in the day you know when he hit the cons man he signed anything that was brought in front of him even when the guy brought mm -hmm. up the, the short box or the long box <laughs> you know he'd sigh and he'd just you know okay my hand's not working for another couple of days now that's invariably why he stopped going to conventions so much is because it just took too much out of him signing Burn, all that stuff. Mean... Yeah, signing all that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, of course, when he was here, he limited how much he would sign. But, you know, the, the thing is, he's not charging for it. Not like Neil Adams you know, or, you know, or other guys. He's doing it for free because he, you know, he knows how much you know all, all this means and what you know what what the possibilities are with that but you know ultimately he doesn't want to piss off his fans he's not really out there to piss off his fans regardless of what some people say no and i i i, I you know just to be honest i never brought any comics with me to a con you know if i if i went to a con you know i would buy something from their table and you know have them sign it because i knew that was money in their pocket you know they were making money i mean they're sitting there for 10 hours a day mm -hmm. um you know and talking to comic people and signing things and you know hopefully making some money i i had mentioned chris claremont earlier because it was 2016 or 2017 there was like nobody going to see him and I felt so bad for him I had already talked to him and already bought something and had him sign it but he just sat there for like an hour and a half with like nobody coming up to him because I was digging through boxes at a couple different vendors yeah. and I thought oh my god I, you know I went through the same thing with Peter David once and you know I mean it was you know I, I walked up there and there's Peter David and I'm just like oh my gosh you know he's one of my favorite writers yeah. at the time and yeah, so I sat there and talked to him for like an hour and a half, and I embarrassed myself so much in that in that 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 time. Uh, I, I've told the story before. Have you heard it? Mm hmm. You know what I'm talking about? No. Okay, so as I'm sitting there talking to him, he says, "Hey, you want to see something new?" And I said, "What's that?" And he goes, "I've got uh, Xeroxes of John Burns 
Avengers West Coast. And my what? my eyes get big when John Burns started on the West Coast Avengers back in, yeah. the, in the late 80s. Uh, he had Xerox pages of them. They hadn't come out yet. And so I'm like, oh my God, look, let me look at this. And so I'm looking at this in the Xeroxes of the pencils. And I'm just sitting there looking at it going, God, that's gorgeous. Oh, that's gorgeous. I can't wait for this. And I just stopped and I looked at him square in the eye and I said, promise me, please promise me that Al Milgram has nothing to do with this book. He's not inking it or anything. Please. <laughs> and he just gets this real sad, dejected look on his face. He goes, uh, he just kind of like, no, no, uh, no, Al's, Al's not, not working on it. And... You know, he's just kind of quiet there for a little bit, and I'm just sitting there oh, looking at the Oh, God, pages. please tell me he's not next door. Well, the guy sitting next to him gets up and walks off, and then Peter just kind of dips his head that direction goes, that, um, that, that was Al. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, and the worst part is that I, I was just finishing up college, and I wanted to work in the comic book business, and Al was one of the editors at Marvel, so I just screwed myself. <laughs> Out of the possibility of ever being able to work at, you know, there and all that, I feel bad because, yeah, I did. I was not a fan of Al's artwork, and but I've I've gone to bat for him as far as a storyteller, uh, and as far as you know, I mean, while I didn't like his in-page comic book art, his covers have always been dynamic. Mm, it, for sure, it's just that when he's got to do regular storytelling, you know, his action was never what I liked and he had a hard time doing multiple characters and making them look you know good and dynamic and separate he couldn't do what George Perez or John Byrne could do you know in, in a page or Neil Adams you know he he, he just no. couldn't do that and then but what well, I think maybe that's why we have such a soft spot for you know these quote-unquote old-timers you know as we pointed out in the show multiple times I mean today's really top tier talent they're only doing a book a month mm -hmm. maybe two if they've got an independent work right that they're doing with image or somebody else but these guys were doing two three four and sometimes four books a month yeah you know so you start adding that up i mean they're they're doing a hundred a hundred pages a month there's nobody today i don't care I, I, honestly i know I, I can say that for a fact there's nobody that's doing that level of work that these guys were doing well, no. that volume of work yeah I know um, George has got about 11,000 pages under his belt wow yeah and uh, let me go back to John you said Neil is only like 4,000 or something yeah I'll have to go back and look at that John's 21,000 Wow. Man, let me look at Jack. I swear Kirby was drawing in his sleep. <laughs> Jack did 19,441. Wow. And let me look at uh, the other JB. spelled it wrong. How do you spell Basima? You're asking me four drinks in? 
Isn't it B U S C U M E? Come on! What's going on? B U S C E M A. That's what I thought. And did I? He is an American comic book artist. Oh, I had a space after his first name. That's why it wasn't finding it in the search. So, so John Basim, eighteen thousand and twenty-nine. And let's go back and look at Neil again. What about Dicko? Huh? How many Dicko pages are there? Not as many as the other guys. I'm assuming. Neil had yeah, four thousand four hundred and two. I'm pulling all this from Mike's Amazing World, by the way. So we'll put a bunch of asterisks on that. Dicko. Seven thousand seven hundred and four. See, it's not the quantity; it's quality. Yeah, you know, I mean, again. Uh, I mean, there's there are guys that were workhorses that put out a lot of work. Um, yeah, it's amazing. How did how does uh, Burn not have carpal tunnel and like? <laughs> how is he even able to pick up a phone it, it, after drawing that many pages? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, he's. I don't think I've ever heard him say anything about arthritis or anything like that. I have to. How does he not? We get arthritis. People get arthritis using the mouse. Well, yeah, <laughs> the carpal tunnel and all that. I'm sure he's got his own set of exercises and stuff. You know, but that's that's actually a very interesting question to sit there and throw to an artist. But you never, seriously, it, any of the artists, whether it's Byrne or Perez or Kirby or. I wonder. I wonder if it's a pen and pencil thing versus a a digital artist, right? So do do digital comic book artists, you know, suffer you know rapid carpal tunnel like a like a mouse user because they're you know drawing in a square space versus someone drawing on a piece of paper. Well, mm. the interesting thing is, is that you know all the artists you don't hear so much about their hands being unworkable as you usually hear about their eyes right you know and it's usually because of their eyes that they have to stop doing you stop the stop the work so uh you know and these eyes you know the other the other one i wanted to look at was carmine infantino <laughs> no just how many pages he did is that guy ever gonna get a break i like carmine's work not as you know the stuff towards the end of his career, but um, but I know I really liked his uh, you know his stuff, especially his early Flash work um, and uh, Elongated Man. I mean, but he started out in 1941, thirteen thousand three hundred ninety. Wow. Yeah. So um, who who's the guy that had the oh the quintessential seventies kind of pop pop culture exaggerated look. Um, Dang it. Uh, Robbins? Are you talking about? or I, I don't know. They just had a back to the bins extra with him. Uh, Hembeck. Hembeck. Fred Hembeck. 
Yeah. He's not going to have a large uh, body. You don't think so? He was around for a long time. Yeah, but, I mean, his work was always, um, you know, segmented or 341. Because... Handbag, no, like 341 pages. He had way more than that. Well, There's no, no way. But you got to remember the his work at in, in the comic book industry is a lot like Sergio Aragon's in Mad Magazine. I was just gonna say. In, I was you know, just gonna bring because you know he he you know he had like the marginal thinking and stuff like that in Mad Magazine where he'd have all these little side bits and everything in there. But he didn't do that many full books. Uh, I mean, those little drawings are, in the margins. There are 36 story credits for Fred Hembeck. That's 36 full books that, you know, or books where he did as a writer or artist or letterer. That's or, it? Uh, 36. Wow. From 79 to 2018. Wow. But, you know, the, the thing is, is that, you know, he was there in the background at Marvel or at DC, you'd see the the Marvel Age and the DC um, letter, yeah. the, the, the Daily Planet page and the DC Comics, and they would have like a Fred Hembick strip in there. It doesn't count those. Mm. Okay, it's it's counting like the full book stories, like that assistant editor's issue of Amazing Spider-Man, where he had the fly, the human fly, turn into a real fly or acting like a real fly. Or you know, just uh, the the Fantastic Four roast, or, the, or Fred <laughs> Hempick destroys the Marvel universe. You know, that was pretty funny. Yeah, but he didn't have a whole lot of those where he did the you know full stories. He just had a lot of those little strips that he did. I guess it paid the bills. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, again, the the comic book art itself is i mean it's a hard industry for one and if you can get steady work in there that's a good thing but you can make more money in advertising and i think that's what neil did he got out into yep. a lot of commercial work and, and he had a whole studio where he was doing commercial work and that's where well he came from he came from advertising mm -hmm. and then got out and did more advertising right so that's why neil is away so much and and i mean he wasn't as prolific as a lot of the, the, the other guys that we sit there and we think of, you know, and and he did he did a lot of toy stuff, by the way. Mm -hmm. I think he talks about that in Fat Man and Batman doing toys. Now, did he you know, the, have any cartoons that were done after him? I mean, I know like Jack Kirby and Alex Toth did did a lot of stuff, but did. Um, he had uh, his rabbit character, and I can't think of the name of it right now. Uh, Bucky O'Hare? Bucky O'Hare? I don't even know that. Yeah, I think it was a cartoon series. Um, but he, that, uh, he talks about Bucky O'Hare, but he, he, he talks a lot about doing the, uh, the card the cardstock that would come on, you know, the toys in the eighties and doing that and having a lot of the original artwork for those, um, toys. Hmm. So to your point, you know, he, I think he enjoyed 
doing the comic book stuff, but you know the mon- the money was not there comparatively to to doing advertising work. Yeah, well, he definitely had a passion for it because, I mean, why would he have come back to it back again in the last ten years when he did like Batman Odyssey or the Reign of the Superman and and those other books? Right. Unless he definitely had a a, a passion for it. Um. He, yeah, which is and I. I've read all those. I bought all those issues. Um, uh, neither story was all that great, you know. And and that's where I think if uh, you know we talk about ego, I wish that his ego hadn't gotten in the way. Because if he had had somebody write, you know, Batman Odyssey or Reign of the Superman, you know, a competent writer. I think they would have been better stories. I don't. I don't think either one of them, you know, will will rank high on you know the Neil Adams scale right of work. Um, they're there. They're enjoyable, but they're not great. It, it leads me to that question: Who is the single greatest writer artist in the comic book industry? When when you sit there and you look at it, I mean. Some people throw Kirby out there, but Kirby's storytelling had, as a writer, could be really goofy and kooky. McFarlane. No, um, you know what? I mean, but, you know, the thing <laughs> is, is that they're just not that. There aren't any today that are no, that are the today, full package. You know? No, no, it's all been segmented out, and um, no, because even the the best Batman stories, right, of the last. 10 years was Scott Snyder and, and uh, Greg Capullo mm-hmm. on the Batman New 52. But, uh, you know, Capullo's not a writer and but when, when it gets not down a, to an artist. It, when it gets down to it, the greatest writer-artist, single, a single individual as a writer-artist, is going to be down between... Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby, John Byrne, um, Walt Simonson, and Frank Miller. Mm-hmm. Forgot about Simonson. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but but the, the the thing is, is that beyond those, everybody else has just kind of fallen. You know, I mean, and Frank Miller's kind of out there. Isn't, you know, and isn't that funny? In seventy years of comics, well, eighty years of comics being published, you know, regularly, we can count. I mean, if we sat here for long enough with enough dead silence, mm-hmm. we could we we could still count them all on two hands, right? In 80 years or 90 years. Yeah. And that's not to say that's a bad thing, but it's, I think it's to say that it's extraordinarily rare to find someone that can write and draw. Yeah, because, I mean, the other guys you look at, you mentioned Todd McFarlane, there's Eric Larson, yep. there's Rob Liefeld, but they've got one character each. And Liefeld's not a great writer. I would say McFarlane runs out of ideas quick. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was just talking to a friend about that. You know, we were talking about the 90s Spider-Man, right? When McFarlane launched Spider-Man, yeah, right? Yeah. The, the non-amazing or spectacular titles. Yeah. Exactly. And you go back and read them now. I mean, the pages, yes, there's tons of energy and they're very phonetic. Mm-hmm. But the stories suck. Yeah. Um, you know, it's all about the art. Right, and right. so, you know, it, it's really hard to, to even come up with somebody modern that you would put in that category. You know, they might have a handful of stories that are, are good, 
you know, uh, well written and well why do you uh, think, drawn. Why do you think it's gone that way? Do you think it's just because the money is too good to sit there and and wear all the hats? No, if anything, it'd be the money would be way better if you could do both. <laughs> and, yet, and yet, there's nobody that stood up like these guys did. You know, John Basima, you know, as an artist, you know, was was incredibly prolific, but he yep. wasn't a writer. No. And you know, it's there are you know many and, and George Perez spent most of his time as an artist, though he has writer credit. Um, but still not as prolific as Jack or John. I think I think it's such a unique skill set to do both mm-hmm. that you only get one a decade kind of thing that come into the the yeah, but we, zeitgeist. we haven't had one come in the last two decades. Oh, that's true. Maybe they killed them all off. Or they just maybe the people. Maybe we'll have an ultimate, the ultimate version now arise. <laughs> the powers have gathered. Yeah, maybe it'll be my maybe it's, maybe it'll be my son. But my son yeah, is he's using his art as a springboard to being a movie director. That's ultimately what he wants to do. Is he wants to be a movie director. He just wants the cocaine and women. I don't think he wants the cocaine. The women definitely. But if, and really, his his uh, addiction is pizza. Mm. And, and right now, so he wants pizza and women. Pizza and women. So, uh, so Kurt, I, you know, I didn't have what you would call a typical. You know, I mean, I as far as my Neil Adams fandom went, I I mean, I've always held a, a great amount of respect for his work and love for his work. I think that he's got beautiful, beautiful artwork. And you can see how John Byrne and George Perez, Keith Giffen, uh, Mike Grell, uh, and, and many, many other artists of the day were inspired by his work. But, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to bring up anything unpleasant, but you are a little bit older than the rest of us. Yeah, I'm the old man in the room. That's okay. Now, did you grow up reading Neil? Oh... Um, yes and no. He, my first memories of his work were the uh, Green Arrow, Green Lantern reality run. Hard traveling heroes, yeah. And since I was a Marvel fanboy, I was seeing them show up on the spinner rack. And if the store owner wasn't watching too carefully, I would pluck them off and flip through them because the, the covers were so dramatic that, you know, it's. Um, Paul Spataro's measure of a good cover. Does it make you want to pick it up and look through the book? Well, yes, they were very dramatic and they would grab your attention and the artwork was so realistic in terms of the figure drawing that that uh, you know, I was aware, not of who the artist was, but that Green Lantern Green Arrow had really shifted focus and they were doing something different that were tackling the social issues of the day. So that was my first exposure to him. And then, lo and behold, the X-Men that was basically circling the drain in the uh, the 40s and 50s issues uh, in the the late 60s, uh, 1960s, uh, 
you know, really wasn't getting any traction, wasn't getting anywhere, although there had been um, some Steranko, I think it was a three-issue Steranko arc right around 49, 50, 51. Mm-hmm. It just seemed to be floundering. It couldn't get a direction, couldn't get any popularity. Um, then they introduced a brother for a long-lost brother for Scott Summers uh, that Alex. was going to become Alex and going to become Havoc. But it's like, oh, when you have to introduce a prior, you know, prior to this, never heard of family member, I knew they were in serious trouble. And then the next issue, about 55, all of a sudden the artwork shifted and became uh, the, the, the masterpiece that we know as the, uh, the Roy Thomas, Neil Adams year. And I disliked it. I got to tell you, I was like, really couldn't stand it, put it back on the rack, didn't buy it. And after about, I don't know, maybe three, four issues, and they started the Sentinel, uh, Return of the Sentinels, I really got into it and then scrambled to find those back issues and pieced them together. And then I was with the X-Men all the way to their end at issue 66. Yeah. So that's my real introduction to him. Uh, Initially disliking it and then realizing, hey, this storytelling is really good. And it was engaging me. So, um, you know, I realized that they had shifted gears and, and were aiming at a young or a, at a young adult crowd rather than teeny boppers. And I was transitioning through puberty into uh, in high school. And so I started picking up on them. And I thought, you know, I was very impressed with the storytelling. The artwork was just the vehicle. Um, and then he also worked on the Avengers the beginning of the pre-scroll war and the uh, inhuman strip that was in amazing adventures that somewhat tied into the avengers as well so i was really digging the inhumans storyline and then all of a sudden that ended and i read someplace years later uh, an interview with neil adams saying what's the story why did you leave and he said oh we had these great plans to take a look at Thor being wanted for murder and what does it mean to be an Avenger? Do you have, you know, are you in a privileged status that you can't be held accountable for your actions? Or, you know, is he a god? Is he subject to the the laws of man? Anyways, it was very, it sounded great. It's like, yeah, I can see the seeds of those stories being planted. It's like, that was really great. And his explanation was, well, I signed up to work with Roy Thomas and then all of a sudden I got handed off to somebody else and I wasn't working with Roy Thomas anymore. And so I left. And I thought, gee, can you do that? I guess you could. So uh, that's that was my introduction to, uh, to Neil Adams. And I was a little disappointed that he didn't finish the last issue of the Kree-Skrull War, as it came to be known. Mm-hmm. Uh, but boy, uh, the complexity of the stories and the maturity of the artwork just just superb we look back on that now as a golden age in the silver age just uh, a high point and then, and then there's also his involvement in creator rights yeah uh, more modern day and I, I can't speak a lot to that except from what I understand he used his his popularity and his 
desirability as a leverage to get some of the big two to grant more uh, rights and or what's the word I want, remuneration, mm -hmm. privilege, insurance for some of the creators. And I have a lot of respect for that effort. I don't know. He got Jack what Kirby his. He got Jack Kirby his original art back from like his Fantastic Four run. Yeah, uh, I mean it was it was directly related to the work that he did there. Listen, that's based on what I've been reading, you know, and, and finding out. Now it, when I'm sitting there looking at, at all the stuff, I remember, you know, I've, I've got a certain standpoint because I've been such a huge fan of of John Byrne. And we know that John Byrne was greatly influenced by Neil Adams and Jack Kirby. Um, but, you know, the, the thing was, is like when I was a, a kid, 10, 12 and such, is around the era that I discovered Byrne and, and Byrne's work. I've read some of Adams, just basically I was introduced to it from the, the Joker's five-way revenge storyline. Story, oh, yeah. You know, um, and I, I recognized immediately that his artwork was superior to most other artists and was just a, a, amazed by it but by the time that I got into comics and was really collecting he had left he had the last thing he'd done I guess was the bat uh, the Superman Muhammad Ali and he'd moved on to more commercial work and gotten away from you know the the big two as far as comics go and I was like you know everybody you know is up in arms about John Byrne leaving the X-Men I mean this is my, my thoughts here years later but nobody ever gives Neil Adams crap for you know just walking away from comics altogether when he was at the top of his game you know yeah. and I'm not saying that anybody should be angry at him I'm just saying it seems to be a real double-edged sword there yeah. and you know yeah. Neil was on what six issues of X-Men and uh, you know, find you find out later that they brought Neil and Roy together in on this to to you know boost up the sales of X Men, but unfortunately the 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 sales cycle, the reporting of the sales cycle is like nine months. They don't find out for nine months just how well a book is doing, and so before the book was really even published out there, before those six issues were out there. The, the number crunchers were getting the numbers and saying, now we're just going to cancel the book. And so they were killed before they even got started. Yeah, which really surprised me. They were going so great guns, and then they brought Professor X back, and at mm -hmm. that point I, I, I didn't like that issue very much initially because it basically said... When we announced on the cover of issue 42 or 43, not a hoax, not a dream, this is real, Professor X is dead, you know, it's like, oh, yes it is, it is a hoax. And it's like, that really bothered me. But I recognized they were resetting the chessboard. Yeah. Putting all the toys back in their places. And then why they went with one more issue with, uh, I can't recall who the artist was, but... It, was very cartoony with the Hulk, issue 66. I was like, why didn't you end it just at 65? But 66 came out and there was a footnote. The only place I've ever seen it where they actually put a, um, an explanation in the letters pages saying, well, folks, this is the last issue of the X-Men. And, uh, you know, we're sorry to have to leave this on somewhat of a cliffhanger with uh, Professor X being 
uh, in recovery, but, uh, you know, don't worry, you'll see your Merry Mutants someplace. It's like, I never heard a creator write a goodbye. I think it was Roy Thomas that wrote it, but uh, I, I kind of sat up and went, oh, they're ending it after this great run? Just something didn't feel right. And then, as we found out, it's because they weren't, weren't aware of the sales success that the prior uh, collaboration the last year, as I describe it, from 55 to 66. Um, you know, they didn't have the sales figures, as you say. Or when they came in, they had already axed the book and scattered the, the um, creative team to the winds. Uh, and, I, and now, in hindsight, I understand that's why the X-Men went into reprint. There were a several-month gap between that last issue and then all of a sudden you know, 67 came out that was reprinting something else. I think it might have been the original appearance of the Sentinels. But at any rate, it, it came out and it was like, what's this? Uh, and they continued that way. And I thought, I scratched my head as a, as a kid trying to figure out what in the world Marvel was doing. Who was steering the ship? Because it didn't make sense. But now in hindsight, understanding that they got the sales figures and went, oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This was a cash cow. Now it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. I mean, that was 1970. That was when Stan Lee was really strained as as the editor. And he was getting ready to step down uh, and, and anoint Roy Thomas. Um, I, I just think that, you know, he, he, there was just too much going on. And because it, it's Stan that actually wrote that note that you're talking about that's in, that's in the back of... Uh, Uncanny X-Men 66 saying it's the last issue. Oh. And, and um, yeah, because it's a special announcement from Stan, Roy, and Neil. And the, 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 it references Roy and Neil, you know, so Stan had to have been the one to write it. Um, I was just looking at that. And it's got Excelsior at the very end. So, yeah, that's Stan. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it, it is what, you know, it, it, just how these things work, you know, back then. I mean, even even today, uh, you know, the sales information I don't think is is always you know great or upfront or timely for them to really figure things out. It takes it takes that comic book industry a while, uh, even with direct market, to figure out how things are really doing. But uh, again, the, the sales of the comic book industry have always been a sore subject for everybody no matter how good you know they are um and and sadly you know books like the x-men seem to suffer the most again here at this point um that was the the march issue issue 66 and i'm just taking a look here real quick 65 is uh date of february now so it showed to be monthly there Yes. Yeah, but it, after it that, it went monthly. bi-monthly. It went every other month when it went into reprints. That makes sense. And so when, when yeah, when Dave Cockrum and, and Len Wein started up all new, all different X-Men, they were still in a bi-monthly schedule. It wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, until, I mean, it's when they decided to go monthly that yep. that they turned to John Byrne and there's a lot of discussion about how that went because yeah John was told basically that Dave's leaving the book so John jumps at the chance to do it they go monthly and then they tell Dave yeah John's going to do the book and 
John, Dave kind of held a little enmity towards John Byrne. It's just, uh, man, it's just always crazy how that goes. But going back to... Cochran couldn't keep up with a monthly book. No, no, he couldn't. And we, we saw later when, when he was doing the, the second run, he had to get inkers to come in and do the inking so he could just pencil. Uh, but I prefer Cochran's work where he inks his own work because other artists, uh, other inkers just, you can't ink Dave's work the way that Dave would like it inked. I mean, and, you know, and, and even Byrne complains about his own work that there are very few inkers out there that ink it the way he wants it inked. And I think mm. he, he was most pleased with Tony Dezuniga's uh, inks on Byrne's work, which if you look at the work that he did on that Marvel team up with Thor, it looks very Neil Adams-esque, more so than a lot of Byrne's other work. So I thought that was very interesting. I thought the... Um... Terry Austin was the uh, the best inker. Well, I mean, was my Ter- impression. Terry is. I mean, he is de facto the best inker. I mean, just you 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 ask anybody out there who's the best inker on John Byrne, they're going to say Terry yep. Austin. Yep. But when it comes down to what Byrne to Byrne's sensibilities and Byrne's taste, he likes more what Tony Dezaniga did with his work than what Terry Austin has done because Terry Austin and John Byrne is. A peanut butter and jelly it's two different flavors mashed together to create you know this beautiful image that we see in uncanny x-men when tony dejaniga came in and was inking burn stuff he was doing an extension of it was like peanut butter with nutella you know just something just a little different but name an issue where where he did the inks. Where Dezuniga, it was a Marvel team up, and let me let me go here. We just covered it um, last year with the Back to the Bins guys. Uh, and let me go. And I want to say it's in the '60s or '50s. Uh, '70, uh, yeah. Marvel this Team is... of 70, that's the one with the living monolith. Okay. Yeah. That helps me reference it. Yeah, and, and I mean, you see that the, the inks done on that are miles away from what Terry Austin does. What Terry Austin does is is very clean and um, almost mechanical to Burns, you know, to Burns' art. Because Zaniga... He's gone in and he's done more of a, I don't want to say sketchy, but, you know, more heavy lines. Um, and, it, you know, it's, it seems to be more derivative of a, of a Neil Adams look. And again, he's doing with De- a Neil Adams character something that Neil Adams made huge in The Living Monolith. So I think that adds to it as well. But you look at Burns Thor here and it looks like he took a lot of that from Adams as well. Good stuff. Yeah. Primo. Oh, Dr. yeah. Mark. It is. It is. It is really great, and it's one of my all-time favorite issues. And I've only grown to appreciate it more and more and more as the years go on. Um, so, how many issues of Marvel Team Up did Byrne draw? Oh, I'd say about ten or twelve. Yeah. Um, it seems more and more when I look back on the Silver Age and and uh, Bronze Age. Mm-hmm. Especially with Byrne, I have the sense that he contracts for a year. 
that he he agrees to do things in year periods. Mm. Uh, and I guess that's also true if you look at other things like uh, some of the inkers on Jack Kirby through the uh, the Fantastic Four, Silver Age, and maybe the Avengers. I you know I never really as a kid caught on that there were contracts that were being signed and that they ran from year to year. And then there'd I, I be a shift. I don't think chain. he did a contract from year to year. I, you know, I mean, he was strictly work for hire, which means basically, you know, if he's getting getting on a book, uh, or he's working with an editor, the editor is going to try and throw him as much as he can. Now, like with Marvel Team Up, he basically started with issue fifty three, and that was uh, uh, with the Bill Mantlo Spider Man and the Hulk. Um. 54, 55, and then 59, 60, 61, 62, 63, 64, 65, 66 through 70, and then not again till 75. So it, it wasn't just straight, you know, one after the other. Though when, when he was working with Chris Claremont, you know, they were creating very cohesive stories, but he had so many other things he was doing at the times. He was doing Iron Fist regularly up until, you know, issue 15 came about. He was doing Champions up until issue 16 came out. Uh, <laughs> he was, he'd started working on Avengers at that time. And uh, he would he was finishing up the Iron Fist storyline in the Power Man and Marvel Team-Up books. And then, boom, X-Men 108 comes out and we're off to the races. I mean, he was working on all, virtually four books a month. And he was just getting everything he could. Now, you know, part of that is working with particular editors, but there wasn't ever a, a contract, so to speak, of he's going to work on this book for so long or that book for so long. He wants to stay working on, you know, on, on a book as long as the story is good. But mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times he just, you know, either he was misinformed or lied to by you know editors on how things are going to go or things just failed i mean iron fist as a book did not you know maintain the sales they needed so they canceled it after 15 issues and to kind of you know do something with that character they went ahead and teamed him up with power man and that turned into a pretty successful book at least for a few years yeah but after the first uh two three issues he was off i think he was in issues what, 48, 49, and 50? Um, and now, let's see, I'm, I'm double-checking that that right there to make sure I've got my stuff for this. Yeah. Power Man. And is that where they changed the name? It was at issue 51, I believe, where they changed it to Power Man and Iron Fist. Okay. But his last issue was, was Power Man 50, where the story was titled Power Man, Iron Fist, Freedom. And... Um, then let's see. I mean, you know, his his career turned turned up that way. But you know, again, at this point, this is pretty much at the point where Neil Adams had hung up his uh, pencil in the in the comic industry. Um, I was looking at that right there. It's 70, 78 was when he did Superman and Ali. Seventy nine, he did an Archie book. And 80, he did one Conan story as an inker. 
and then he did uh, a, a writer uh, a story where he actually wrote for Epic Illustrated. After that, he didn't work for Marvel or DC until '99, and that was uh, he. We went to DC and did uh, Fanboy, and at Marvel he did uh, the Giant Size X Men number three. Oh no, Marvel that wasn't until 2005. I mean, he just he just walked away. I mean, he 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 had books. Well, at, would have gone at, into. Uh... Advertising illustration. Yeah, because that definitely pays, pays more money. And, you know, it, it was also in the 80s where he got into the legal uh, uh, situation with um, Marvel, I mean, I mean, DC, about, you know, Siegel and Schuster. Was it the 80s or was it the 70s? The 80s, I suspect. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, you know, he definitely used his clout, but he was gone from the industry for the most part. Um, at that point, and guys like me, you know, I mean, I wasn't, I hadn't discovered the true comic book shops until about 1982, so I had no way of going back and getting back issues. The only way I could, uh, you know, read these stories was in reprints that were published, and the only reprints I was getting really was um, the uh, Marvel Tales, which was reprinting Amazing Spider-Man. Um, Marvel Superheroes, which was reprinting the Avengers, and then there was, and they, I never saw a Neil Adams issue in those, though. I did see a lot of Basima. And then the uh, DC Blue Ribbon Digest, and that's where I saw Neil Adams' work in Batman. But it would be a long time before I'd see, I think it was in the Secret Origins issues, I actually saw Dead Man. Which, uh, I mean, Dead Man is a, is a big part of Neil's early career. That's true. I'd have forgotten about that. I remember that hitting the stand. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's funny because Neil's career picked up in 1967, and he was actually working for Warren Publishing at the time, working on Creepy and Eerie magazine. His first stuff at DC was like Our Army at War and The Adventures of Jerry Lewis. Ha! <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, but he then got... Um, eventually into an elongated man story in Detective Comics in September of uh, it was Detective Comics 367 no, and even looking at that issue I've got I've got a, a, a copy of it you can see that he, his art was already polished his art was already everything that Neil Adams art was, you know was going to be and the beautiful thing about that particular uh, story is that he inked it himself Whereas the later stuff that gets published in like World's Finest or Brave and the Bold or whatever was all inked by Dick Giordano. Do you recall what the plot was for that elongated man story? Oh, it was actually a, a Sue Dibney mystery. Um, let me see here. For the cover of the issue? I don't... Yeah, the cover of it is uh, uh, Batman and Batgirl playing tug of war with Robin. Okay. Because the, I remember that. Couple. Yeah, the internal story, Legend of the Lover's Lantern, is the um, is the, the the story that Adams did the artwork on. Gardner Fox wrote the story, and Sue apparently bought uh, a lantern at some auction, and the lantern had supernatural properties that ensured that the owner's loved ones will return home safely. Uh, you know, it's just. She, the story goes on, you know, on and about and everything, and even at the end, you, you've got that question mark. Well, really, did it really? Did it really? You know, 
but uh, the artwork is is very solid and as I looked at that that artwork in that very first um, story I mean I was, you know his first story of that type I was like you know this is really good but I can see other other artists in in some of the work I can I could even see influence from Vinnie Coletta and uh, his choices on inks and Zipatone. So I was like, okay, that's 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 actually kind of interesting. <laughs> did, didn't Neil Adams do a series of covers for House of Secrets? Uh, he did. Yeah. Well, he did a lot of like the House of Mystery. Yeah. And 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 that kind of stuff. He did a, a lot of like the haunted haunted stuff. He seemed to apparently like that type of story. I mean, that's what I guess drew him to Dead Man and Spectre. Um, you, you you can read all those things in, in the, the issues of like Strange Adventures I think in the 200s um, and I remember the, the covers where the kids the kids would be in jeopardy or the kids would be spying on something and creeping up behind them is a shadow or a monster or so the kids would always be at risk and that would as a cover illustration that would really draw you in you'd want to pick up that issue to see what was going on? How are they going to get out of this? Yeah. So it was a great marketing book. Whether or not he drew the interiors, I can't tell you. But um, there was something... a whole series of, it... of covers that were. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times. That way. You know, as a teenager, you know, I'd sit there and see a book that had John Byrne artwork on the cover, and I'd be like, mm -hmm. "Oh, wow, this is great!" So I grab it, and of course, the inside art is. Somebody, somebody else, else I have no interest in, you know, and it's just such a disappointment. Yeah. Um, yep. But I know that, like, um, on Adams, you know, he in all this, where he was doing all this stuff, he was doing Dead Man, and he'd done some work in uh, World's Finest with Dick Giordano, with Superman, Batman, actual Superman, Batman team-ups. And then he got his first real uh, break on Batman in Brave and the Bold. And uh, he did a, a, a multiple issue Dead Man storyline, and then followed it up with the Creeper. And all that stuff is so really good, and you can just see his artwork is taken off. But his Batman model is more of the older with the short ears and, and everything. He would go to the longer eared uh, one, like he did with Neil. Ad uh, I'm sorry, uh, Denny O'Neill. Mm -hmm. And then, like the Joker's Five Way Revenge, he wouldn't go to that model until later. So I, I'm sitting there going through my books, and and looking through his, trying to see the the, the uh, evolution of his art and and the models that he had for the characters, because his model for Superman early on was also really kind of wonky at stuff. And there there were some things that he did with Superman where his physicality was a little off. His biology is. Uh, Anatomy was, was was always kind of wonky. He did the uh, Kryptonite No More cover, right? Yes. With Superman busting the chains. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But not the internal art on that. Yeah. Well, that's an iconic image. Yeah. But, you know, and, and then when you get into, like, 60, 1969, he it looks like the 80s all over again because Adams is just like X-Men and Teen Titans. <laughs> And he's working on those guys back and forth, and then finally goes into like Avengers. But he did well, some Aquaman stories and and um, some regular Batman stories, Phantom Stranger. 
I mean, he had this great career, but it's all, I mean, up until he started doing the hard traveling heroes, everything he did had kind of a, of a night, darkness, twisty, almost, moody. you know, moody kind of thing to it. And then you, he gets to hard traveling heroes and all of a sudden you are at grit and grim and, you know, drug use and, uh, ra- you know, r- racism. And it's yep. a complete shift from what from what he was doing before. <clears throat> oh, he did Thor 180. I gotta take a look at that. 180. Thor 180. Yeah. Yeah, the, that's gonna be the um, Loki has got the body of Thor uh, issue. See, I've not just before I've not done Doctor Doom Thor read through yet, and I need to. Um, Kirby had uh, had gone to one-shot stories in around 170, so they're very done in one, done in one, done in one, and then about 19, uh, in the issue 174, 175, they start this uh, Fall of Asgard storyline where Loki takes over the throne, and oh I think it's Surtur who's released from the uh, released from the bonds that were holding him. Anyways, it's a three three-part story that goes uh, it's like 176, 177. Anyways, the, the way that it pays off, the Kirby wraps up his storyline after there's somebody else who fills in with a, an issue with the stranger. It's just very, very uneven there. And then all of a sudden, Kirby comes back for one, and I think the point where Neil Adams fills in, comes in, is uh, Kirby has left and Thor's body's been taken over by Loki. And so Thor's consciousness is in Loki's body. And they're trying to convince the other Asgardians that Loki is not really Loki. Uh, you know what I'm saying? They've yeah. switched places and it goes into Mephisto's laying uh, lair, into his realm. And ultimately, the truth comes out and they're restored. And I think that's how how Neil Adams ends that arc. And then there's a two-part Doctor Doom story. And about that point, I checked out. It was like, I'm done. I'm gone. This is not the same. Yeah, you know, I I opened that very first page on that uh, Thor book. And the, 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 the thing that really jumps out at me is that that's a, that uh, John Byrne kind of swiped that image for an issue of the Avengers that he worked on. Probably 181 or somewhere in that area. Uh, What's the cover of 180? Well, the cover of 181, that's the one with all the Avengers together with um, Henry Peter Jarge, but it's not that one. I just realized. Nope, it's not that one. So I'm having no. to sit there and go through. Thor 180. Thor 180. Thor. The, the the opening splash page is Thor standing there, um, uh, you know, with the hammer down below. He's like getting ready to sling the hammer to to fly away. Um, big splash page. You got people. It looks like he's in front of the New York Public Library because you have the statue of the lion and a little kid pointing at him. And um, now the thing is, is that, you know, it's a, it, it is Neil Adams art, Neil Adams layouts, but it's inked by Joe Sinnott. And I don't want to take anything away from Joe. Joe's one of the great, great inkers of the day. 
but when given artists that are detailed like Neil Adams or John Byrne, you know, so on and so forth, he has a tendency to kind of rein them back in towards the house style. Yes, I think that was the goal. Marvel was very concerned that the fans were going to perceive that Kirby had left, so they were doing everything they could to maintain the illusion that, oh, things are just the same, nothing's nothing changed, Yeah. nobody's gone. But I mean, I, I just I, I I don't want to do that with Neil Adams. I want to I want to I want to unleash him upon the world. Let him you know stretch his stretch his wings and really uh, show his show what he can do. And so when I see that, I'm just kind of like, oh come on. But you know, again, that's that's just me. It's my my personal thing. I could be wrong compared to others. Probably a lot of other people are just sitting there saying right now, you don't know what you're talking about. And if you want to say that, that's fine. And I'm still going through those Avengers issues to find that one. Because I know that the very first page, or, or one of the first pages, is like a big image of Thor getting ready to leave the Avengers mansion. And it uh, so much reminds me of that issue from uh, that that issue of Thor there. And uh, I'm not finding it. I may have to look into the issues. Maybe it's um, maybe it's an, oh, okay. So here it is in um, the Hawkeye issue 189, and it's not a swipe. I mean, it's it is a similar pose, but yeah, it's because he's got his arm up. Yeah, if you look at the at the splash page of issue 189 next to the splash page of Thor 180, you can see where Burn Burn got that 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 image that idea. But he he's changed it enough; it's not like a complete swipe. All right, I'm calling up 180 right now online. I see the cover. Yeah, when gods go mad. Yeah. Yep, I see it. I see it. Yeah, there's no question. That definitely is Neil Adams, especially in the kid's face on the splash there. I just I just see that there's less detail than I'm accustomed to seeing with Neil's work. You know, like it, it's been washed over a little bit. Um, but when you get to page three and the 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 look on Thor's face, the 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 evil smile and everything. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's greatness. And then, of course, page four, full face shot of Odin. Yeah. And that's just beautiful. I mean, I, I need to go back and look at the the, uh, the earlier stuff, the, the Kirby stuff, to see how it compares to this. Because I know that Kirby at this time, and I know that um, Vinny Coletta was inking them, but it's still gorgeous stuff, regardless of what anybody says about Vinny's inking. I know that um, that that a lot of the stuff they did there was just incredibly beautiful. So I, I'm going to have to go back and sit down. I just need to find the time to do it. Hmm. But I, I mean, it's it's funny because sitting there looking at all this, I you know, it's like again when I was talking with David the other night. I did some comparisons, and the one thing I found is that Neil's body of work is small compared to the others. 
Byrne is well yeah. over 20,000 pages of work. Perez is somewhere about 19,000. You know, other artists, you know, there are other artists in there. Jack Kirby was, you know, in that range also. But Neil Adams, 4,402. Hmm. So, you know, great, great art. He made, you know, a, a, a huge uh, uh, impact on the comic book industry in that he brought in other guys that were trying to do as well as he did. And he, you know, he impacted a lot of young artists in, in, in the work and all. But when you look at the body of work, they all outnumber him. I mean, Keith Giffen is still working today. Uh, Mike Grell is still working today. Mike Grell's going as strong as ever with his work. Uh, obviously, we know what John Byrne's doing, and sadly, we know what's going on with George Perez. But you know, I mean, there are other guys out there. I, you know, I, I don't know what they would say about Joe Staten as far as his influences, but I can see it. Um, but there are a lot of other artists out there that started out like him, Brent, An Brent Anderson, uh, even Bill Sienkiewicz, uh that started out, you know, influenced and and going by the idea of what Neil Adams was doing. So, I mean, just huge, huge impact on the industry. And there is a lot of stuff that you can go out and read right now. Some things are easy to find, other things not so much. Um, I don't know. Well, I think you'll see a big influx of reprints yeah, there's and be, trades. And the, the best of, or the greatest of, or yeah, mm -hmm. some omnibus, you know, an omnibus or two that are just going to be you know, good collections, and probably we'll start seeing uh, some artist editions or artifact editions out of IDW um, if they stay afloat. Uh, their numbers haven't been that great of late. I don't think they've made a profit in years, but uh, I love what they put out, and I hope that they can stay afloat. Whew. Anyway, do you have any other thoughts you want to bring up on uh, on Neil Adams, or any any issues in particular you'd like to point out that we're you know, that impacted you? Oh, the four-part Inhuman story from uh, Amazing Adventures numbers 5, 6, 7, and 8. Now that was a, an early volume, right? Uh, well, yeah, 1971. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. It was Amazing Adventures. It was supposed to lead into the Avengers. And, you know, they're only 10 pages per, per installment, but they were particularly good. Black Bolt is taken out of his costume. We see him with black hair for the first time, what he looks like without. And, uh, well, it leads to, I think it was issue eight, where there's a confrontation between Thor and, uh, I can't remember the character's name, Moses. Mr. Moses. Anyway, it's the, the uh, uh, black revolutionary who's uh, who's invaded New York or is uh, threatening to, to threatening violence. Anyways, they have a, a great confrontation, and uh, as it builds right to the end, it's not clear if Thor recognizes that this is not Black Bolt standing on top of the cannon, mm -hmm. or if he thinks that it is. But as the dynamo of the tank wind, uh, revs up, Thor is calling a thunderstorm, and there's a huge lightning strike, 
which hits the figure of Black Bolt and kills him. And that was supposed to lead into the question of are Avengers above the law or not? Is Thor above the law or not? And it was going to somewhat underscore the fact that Thor is a god. He is not answerable to the laws of man. And, and as it turns out, um, the cops move in, they take the, the black militant into, uh, he, he's got a robotic arm or something. Mr. Can't remember, is it Dibs, D-I-B-B? Anyway, so yeah, they take him into custody and they say, well, yeah, he'll come up for trial in another six months or nine months or something like that. And it's said that he just smiles because he is terminally ill and he knows it. And he's only going to last about three to four months. That's what motivated this whole thing. And that's why Thor was there because Don Blake had treated him and he realized the guy's going out with a bang. Anyways, that you know, that was just such a great premise to lead into those other questions that I'm so sorry that we never got to see them. Really would have liked to have uh, seen that story continue at some point. But, you know, they just kind of swept it on the cover. Nobody ever got around to charging Thor. Nobody ever got around to, to pursuing the storyline. It just, you know, it was dropped. Pre-Fall War was going on and or about to erupt. I don't recall the exact sequence in there. But, hmm. but he drew those those four installments and it was just again, the first four, one, two, three, four, were curvy, very cartoonish with Chick Stone inks, and then suddenly it shifts gears to uh, Neil Adams for five, six, seven, eight. And I couldn't wait for the ninth issue, and then to discover that it was a completely different storyline with, I can't think of who the artist was, it was just revolting. Issues nine and ten, the humans took over the full book. It was like a slap in the face. Oh, I was so upset with that. That's all I remember, the, you know, nothing of consequence, just, you know, the emotion of being, finally the Inhumans get a full-length book and it's not by either Kirby or Neil Adams. Just didn't seem fair. Yeah, that does bite. That does bite. Hmm. And it only lasted two issues. And then... Uh, I don't recall what happens with issue 11. Something... It's not Kazar, because Kazar is going over in Astonishing Tales. He takes over there can't remember but whatever it does happen in amazing adventures is oh sure it's the beast it's uh the start of the the, the gray furry beast yeah yeah i'm i'm i remember that uh, was it was it roxon or was it brand corporation he was working for that that happened i want to say brand i'm not sure but that that was a big shock it's like whoa, where did this come from then i realized you know this is becoming nothing but a tryout book you know that they're they're experimenting and they're trying different concepts and different ideas here. I immediately recognized what they were doing with the beast that this was a werewolf. And in hindsight, it's very clear. Roy Thomas and the comics code loosening up that he was immediately flexing into uh, vampires and monster books and you know. We've got Morbius over in Spider-Man. 
We had It, the Living Colossus coming. We had Werewolf by Night. We had uh, Dracula, Son of Satan. I mean, it was, I just, I fled. <laughs> I got out of comics so quick. It's like, you're kidding me. I don't give a damn about any of this. Uh, what happened to the superheroes? And I, uh, I put away comics for like eight years. Wow. Almost missed all of Burns' work on the X-Men. I came in literally one or two issues before he, he departed the X-Men. It's like, whoa, I had all that back issue stuff that I had to find it. And those issues were like four to five dollars a piece. I couldn't believe that anybody would ever pay that much for a back issue. Oh, man. But I did. Imagine now. Imagine now. <laughs> yeah. You all right there? Yeah, just <clears throat> getting worked up. Something went down the wrong place. But that's all, that's all I've got to share. And we've pretty much covered. You know, have you read any of the new stuff, like the Batman Odyssey, the Reign of the Superman that came out within the last few years? Nope. Now, obviously, his art style changed like every artist does. And, and you know, people, you know, either they, it, it was, the, of course, the polarizing thing. They either loved it or hated it. I, I thought it was good, Neil Adams, uh, myself, at least as far as artwork goes, story, not so much. But, you know, that's not necessarily why you go to see Neil's stuff. You want to look at that Did gorgeous he come art. Back? Did he come back to the Uncanny X-Men for like a... There was a just four-issue arc or a six-issue arc. I think it was a special. I'm going to pull that up here right now. I've got Neil's um, uh, work list here. Paul David. And no, I think it. I think it was Neil Adams that came back. And, yeah. And drew four issues in some miniseries or or something, and it didn't go over real well. Giant Size X Men number three came out in 2005, and he did the story teamwork in there. Um, and then he took a break for a couple years. Joss Whedon wrote the story. He did the artwork. Um, and the cover is a complete rip of Giant Size X-Men number one. You know, the X-Men bursting out of the, 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 the circle at the bottom with the, the original X-Men up top. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's. Um, I, I think that was probably what, what you're talking about. I wonder... Um, it doesn't look like it's been reprinted, at least not, not according to Mike Boyles. Um, I'm curious about that one, because I, I don't think I'd um, read that. But, I mean, the thing is, is that Neil's art in the 2000s is different than Neil's art was in the 70s. There's yeah. you know not going to be any getting around that, and, you know, it, it is what it is. And it, it, it wasn't until 2010 that he went back to D.C. and did... Uh, the Batman uh, Odyssey, where he was writer, artist, and colorist uh, for virtually that whole thing. And then he did a new Avengers thing for Marvel that he penciled. Um, let me see what I can find out about that real quick. That was Brian Michael Bendis did the story on that. He even did the cover, though. Um, and, you know, in all these announcements and all these tributes that we've seen for Neil Adams, I don't recall ever reading anything of the cause of death yeah uh, yeah it was sepsis um now he'd been fighting that for a while he'd been in and out of the hospital uh as a result of it so it, not a surprise that you know that that's what got him um hmm. and he was 80 years old so i mean you know it's uh it's just you know the that that kind of you know declining health and such you know just around the corner 
Yeah, but you're taking care of yourself, and you're, you're yeah. Yes, you're you're helping others. I know you uh, you donate a lot of blood, so that's true. Yeah, you know, hopefully there'll be plenty there ready for you when you need it. I mean, my own father is 86 years old, and he's still going strong. Um, he bounds about with the energy of a 50 year old man. Look at William Shatner, 90 years old, and he doesn't seem like he's even out of his 60s. That's because he went to space and was exposed to cosmic rays. <laughs> he was like that before, though. I mean, even before he went went up there. Now, of course, going up to space, uh, definitely, uh, that's a, that's another one of those things that people just can't seem to let go. Some people are angry that he went to space like it was a waste of money. But, you know, it was a waste of somebody's money, not ours, so why fuss? Yep. <sighs> but... Um, and anyway, you know, going back to Neil, you know, it, uh, nobody wants to see anybody suffer. And uh, it, it sounds like that he had been going through an ordeal for quite a while. So at least he's at rest now. He's got uh, a decent body of work and a great legacy. He did so much for the industry, as well as the artists that, you know, worked so hard, artists and writers that worked so hard in almost a thankless job because rarely did they get a thank thank you from the big companies Marvel or DC for the work they did that people had to fight guys like Neil had to fight to get them their due and uh, you know he he basically worked up a, a good uh, pension plan for Siegel and Schuster well I say good it's not necessarily good because they were getting maybe about 20,000 a year and you know that's barely enough to live in in these you know times. Even 20 years ago is barely enough to live. 30 years ago was when all that happened. But Neil did get something done, whereas a lot of other people were just you know. So a big, big uh, personality, very forceful. Just you know, he always commanded the room whenever he was there. Uh, but again, I never got to meet the man. Did you? No, uh, although I saw a couple of clips on YouTube just yesterday. Um, there's one that's about two minutes long where he's at a signing at a, at a um, comic book shop. And whoever runs the camera doesn't hold the camera very steady, but that was kind of interesting to see him in the raw. And then he's being interviewed by somebody, I don't know who, uh, in as part of a series called Hollywood Reporter or something. Yeah. And the good good camera work for about two minutes where he talks about um, getting residuals from Marvel and, and DC for the characters that he made. Yeah. Uh, that DC was giving him a boatload of money, uh, but that Marvel never paid him for their use of Havoc in the X-Men, which was interesting. Um, I, you know, he was obviously a little upset about that and was trying to put some pressure on Marvel. But uh, that was a real interesting little clip. And, and, I, I, was that before uh, or after the Disney buyout? Because I, Disney was less well, inclined he a, to pay residuals. Yeah, and then, he made a slide comment or something about, wonder why that is. And then he says under his breath, as as uh, as the other guy starts to say something, he said, Disney? Um, yeah. So I think I suspect it's after whatever it was. Yeah, that 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 would be then after, and so yeah, that and, and that makes a lot of sense because Disney uh, definitely did not feel they had a responsibility to pay residuals to a lot of 
artists and writers, most notably, of course, is Alan Dean Foster for his work on uh, Star Wars. And, um, you know, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, they weren't paying him any residuals, even though they're still selling that book today. Um, but, yeah, so, again, he he's the one that, 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 that he would talk about the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Not yeah. there are not many people that 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 you know are forceful enough to do that, but he was. Right. Um, right. David and I talked about this the other night, and if you get a chance, you should listen to it. Uh, Kevin Smith did a series of interviews with Neil Adams, where he talked about his work in the industry, and he talked about things like that. Uh, very very interesting to get you know you, you kind of get inside his head and learn a lot about him. And about his, you know, body of work in his career, uh, so you, know, you can look for that on Kevin Smith's um, website. I think it's smodcast.com, and I'll put a link in the show notes here, uh, so anybody can go and look uh, if if they want to find that. Um, anyway, I think we've pretty much covered everything, and uh, you know, it's just been a nice, uh, nice little hour here talking with you, Kirk. Uh, you know, we, we don't really work separately from everybody else, so it's, it's nice to get these little... Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. Till next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn.